Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection, and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. It was the day after Thanksgiving in 2002, and Kim Hoover's home daycare center in Columbus, Ohio, was bustling. That afternoon, she was caring for three children along with her 13-year-old son, Beau. Around 3 o'clock, two more girls were dropped off by their father as he was on his way to work, two-year-old Dorica and seven-month-old Samasha. Kim had been caring for them for about three months. Samasha was asleep in her car seat, so Kim moved her to a crib and let her nap while she fed the other kids. After a couple of hours, she went to wake the baby. I took her snowsuit off. I went to try to give her a bottle, and that's when I realized that she looked lethargic and that she really couldn't hold her head up. Alarmed, Kim quickly called 911 and then administered CPR. When paramedics arrived, they couldn't revive Samasha. She was rushed to the hospital. We never did find out that night what happened to Samasha. And then December 20th, I woke up took my son to school, and then came home, and then there was a knock on the door, and SWAT was there to arrest me. My name is Kim Hoover. I was in prison for 19 years for wrongful conviction of killing a baby that was in my daycare. From Lava for Good, this is Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Today, Kim Hoover. Kim Hoover was born in 1963 to a big, loving family. She grew up in Columbus, Ohio. My mother was Elizabeth Hoover. She went by Betty. My dad was Alfred Hoover. He went by Buck. I have two siblings, an older sister, Kina, and a younger brother, Todd. We had a great childhood. I remember every winter we would get our ice skate and dad would take us around 
after it had rained and froze, the ground had froze or a pond had froze, and then we would go ice skating. And we all looked forward to that. That was something that was fun. My name is Kina. I'm uh, Kim Hoover's older sister. Tell me about growing up with Kim. Um, do you have any favorite memories of her? Just typical sister stuff. You know, we were 23 months apart, so we were just a typical leave-me-alone teenager kind of thing, you know? <laughs> mom was a stay-at-home mom. She took care of all of us. Dad worked for United Parcel Service for years. And then when Kim was around 12 or 13, her father had an accident at work. His backbone was crushed, and he spent a year in traction at the hospital. His recuperation took several years more. We didn't have any income coming in, so mom took in kids through a daycare that she had started at that time, and she ended up having for more than 35 years. She never advertised. It was always word of mouth and family and friends. If it hadn't been for family and, and friends and then mom getting her job with her daycare, that we probably would have lost our house. Kim and her siblings grew up in the daycare. And as she got into her teens, Kim enjoyed helping her mother out. When she wasn't able to, she had a doctor's appointment or something like that, I took over watching her, her daycare kids. In her early 20s, Kim was working at LensCrafters as an apprentice optician. And one day, her cousin invited her to come up north to Delaware, Ohio, for a visit. There was someone she wanted Kim to meet. And when I went up there, I didn't actually meet the person she wanted me to meet. I met somebody else, and then we started dating. And about two years later, we were married. Their son, Beau, was born in 1988, but by then, Kim says the marriage had run its course. We were different people, and had we dated longer, we would have realized that and not got married. But about two and a half years after we were married in 88, we got a divorce, and I raised my son all by myself. I had sole custody. What was that like being a single mother with a newborn? It was, I had my mom. She was his daycare provider while I worked and then eventually went to school. And so kind of like the theme of our life is that family is always there for you no matter what. While raising her son, Bo, Kim was also working and going to school. And I was accumulating debt and I wasn't really making a whole lot back then. So I went back to work and I had a series of different jobs, but I wanted to pay off my student loans and then... Life got in the way, and I never did go back. So when did you start doing the or open your own um, daycare center? I'm not exactly sure because I just started watching kids. On Kids were always at my house, you know. It was just a thing where they would always be there. There was a, a little boy who lived near us and he would always come over to my house and say he's locked out or he forgot his key or something to that effect and then later on his mother had told me she said there's a key right outside 
he wasn't locked out or anything. He just, he didn't want to be alone, you know. And so I was more than happy to take him in and give him a snack and, you know. Like her mother, Kim loved kids and was a natural caregiver. The kids thought of my house as a safe place to be. And I liked that. I liked knowing that they were safe. I liked knowing that they could trust me and the families could trust me. And so it was somewhat of a natural progression. When I started my own, actually, I went to college for it. I went to Columbus State and took classes in early childhood development. So this was something that I planned on doing for until I retired, you know. I love kids. I should have probably have managed my business more as a business. But once they come into my house, they become part of my family. Over the years, Kim took care of around 20 children altogether. In 2002, she had around half a dozen regular kids. I had two eight-week-old twin daughters, and I had their brother, who was autistic. I had Samasha, her older sister, Dorika, and I had a seven-year-old boy named Euro. I had the twins in the morning through the afternoon, and then I would have Dorika and Samasha in the afternoon into the evening hours. Dorika was two years old and Samasha was seven months. Kim remembers that their mother, 22-year-old Akila Benson, first reached out to her in September of 2002. She came to my home and we interviewed, we talked, and everything was fine. And she said right then and there that she wanted me to be her daycare provider. So a few days later, she was supposed to be at my house, I think around nine, but she showed up around like eight. I was still in the shower, so I came running downstairs and she had pushed a double baby stroller a good two, three miles in major traffic to my house. She had assumed that her husband was going to give her the only working car that they had being that she had to travel so far to come to my house, but he didn't. So Kim bundled the young mother and her kids into her own car and drove Akila to work that morning. I told her then, I said, for about the next two weeks, you know, until you can get your car fixed, you get your first paycheck and get your car fixed, I'll go ahead and give you rides. After she dropped Akila off at work, Kim drove the girls back to her house. That's when I took off Samasha's coat. And... That's when I realized that she had a green runny nose, and I assumed it was an infection. So when I went to pick up the mother from work that day and then take them all home, I asked her about that. And she said she was giving her medication for it, but she kind of went into this long spiel about she's looking for a new doctor and all of that. So I left it at that. But as the weeks went by, Samasha's runny nose didn't get any better. In fact, it kept getting worse. And in the about two and a half months that I took care of them, I asked her on numerous occasions. And each time, it was a different excuse. She switched doctors 
and then it came down to that she's giving Samasha her medication before she brings her. She doesn't understand why she's not getting any better. Years later, Kim learned through hospital paperwork that Akila had never actually taken Samasha to the doctor. She had lied to me about that, which to this day I still don't understand because I'm someone that's trying to help her take care of her daughter. And why would you lie to me? I I don't understand that part even today. As a mother, as a parent, I don't get that. Why do you let your child suffer? That's something that I, I still think about quite often and how I could have I realized she wasn't getting any better. Had the mother said, I haven't taken her, I would have driven her over to my son's pediatrician. You know, there was no reason for that to go untreated. And there were other unusual physical issues that Kim had observed in Samasha. She was 20 pounds at nine months. Um, She was very top-heavy. She, um, her body was not normal. Her head was massive. Her chest was massive, but her legs were still very much premature, which she was a premature baby. Um, her belly was so big that she could never get her legs up under her to crawl, to lose some of that weight. Kim also sensed that Akila was having problems with her husband, Wendo. It started that first day when Kim was giving her a ride to work. She started opening up then about things that were going on. I said to her, how long is it going to take for you to get your car fixed? And she said, well, I don't know. He doesn't really want me to get it fixed. And I said, well, why not? And then she said, well, he doesn't want me working. So I started attributing a lot of problems to that. But then as time went on, she started telling me about the fact that When they were in New York, he had gone to jail for supposedly hurting Dorica. And then I started seeing a pattern emerging of domestic violence. Over time, Kim began to notice signs that Akila might be planning to leave Wendo. One day, Akila told her she'd found a new apartment and asked Kim to drive her there to sign the lease. When I took her to sign the lease on the apartment, she kept asking me, please don't tell him. Please don't tell him where it is. And even at the hospital, if you go back and look at the hospital paperwork, it says, do not give out new address to father. Kim kept her word. She didn't tell Wendell about the apartment. Within that last month, he was always asking about Akila's plans. What is she planning on doing? Where's she going? And I think he caught wind that She was working to get away from him. One week in November, Akila didn't bring the girls to Kim's. Kim didn't see them until the day after Thanksgiving. That afternoon, she was taking care of the eight-week-old twin girls and their brother, along with her son, Beau, who was 13. Around 3 o'clock, Wendo brought Dorica and Samasha over. I went over and picked up Samasha, took her out of that chair, I left her coat on her because I had the front door open, but I put her in a baby bed beside me on the couch, and everything seemed normal at that time. 
A couple hours later, after the other children were picked up by their mother, Kim turned her attention to feeding Samasha. I took her snowsuit off. I went to try to give her a bottle, and that's when I realized that she looked lethargic and that she really couldn't hold her head up. So at that point in time, I'm thinking that the green runny nose and her not really wanting to eat had turned into something worse, like pneumonia. And at that point in time, I wasn't calling the parents. I called 911. The operator told Kim to try doing CPR on Samasha, but she didn't revive. When the paramedics arrived, they took the baby straight to Columbus Children's Hospital. Meanwhile, police were questioning Kim about Samasha's parents. They kept asking about Window. They kept asking, had I met him? And I said, yeah, you know, I wasn't really thrilled with him and I didn't want to deal with him. The police told her to call the baby's mother to meet them there. Well, I was her ride, so I said, I have to go get her. She doesn't have a way. And so I went to pick her up and her and my son and Dorica all drove in the car to the hospital Kim and the hospital social worker tried to get Akila to talk to the detectives about what had been going on with Wendo. And she wouldn't do it. She laid on the couch with her coat over her head and kept saying she wanted to go home. She hadn't been in her daughter's room. She hadn't seen her daughter. I ended up calling Akila's mother. We ended up taking Akila home. For whatever reason, she wouldn't stay at the hospital. Kim told the detectives what she'd observed about Samasha's health over the past two months. But they wanted to know more. They asked me more about Akila and Window's relationship. And I told them what I knew at the time, you know, that she was trying to get away from him and all of that. And at that point in time, he said, well, we've already got your statements. We need to deal with the parents. So you guys... You're free to go. You know, thank you for bringing her. We never did find out that night what happened to Samasha. I just kept watching the news like everybody else to see what was going on. And then December 20th, I woke up, took my son to school, took him to his bus stop, and then came home. And then there was a knock on the door and... SWAT was there to arrest me. You're listening to Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. You can listen to this and all the Lava for Good podcasts one week early and ad-free by subscribing to Lava for Good Plus on Apple Podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 
Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets, Meets World House. House. Take a listen. We are lucky to be sitting with Alan and Amy Matthews in the flesh, William, Rusty Russ, and Betsy Randall. Yay! Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yes. When those legends get here, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> you're here. You're here already. No. Uh, we didn't either when we were watching yeah, this that's day. The that's we the didn't problem. realize it until we uh, oh. started getting into seasons three and four, and now we're like, oh, my God. We were both so good on the show, and we missed it because we were we young. We were kids and, and so self-involved. Egomaniacs yeah. and <laughs> didn't realize well, no, how great you were. We've talked about it. I think you just assumed everybody was as good as them. And, right. and then right. you get into right. as you grow up and you work with other actors, you realize how oh. lucky we were yeah. to have you guys. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. From minute one, Kim has said she did not commit this crime. This is Joanna Sanchez, director of the Wrongful Conviction Project at the Ohio Public Defender's Office. Kim has always said, this child collapsed in my care, and unfortunately, we weren't able to save her, but that she did not harm this child. At the hospital, Samatia had been treated by Dr. Ellen McManus. A CT scan showed that the baby had a skull fracture and blood across the brain. Ultimately, Dr. McManus diagnosed Samatia with SBS, shaken baby syndrome. 20 years ago, the understanding of shaken baby syndrome and abusive head trauma was very different than what it is today. Particularly, the doctors would look for three things, which were retinal hemorrhaging, hemorrhage on the brain, and brain swelling. And so when they saw those three things, the presumption was a child was a victim of shaken baby syndrome. As soon as the child would shake in, within about 15 minutes, the belief was that they would go into distress. And what that meant in the criminal context is really the last adult with the child was was always the suspect and always the person who was blamed for what happened to the child. And that's what, exactly what happened in Kim's case. When the officers arrived at Kim's house to arrest her, she was in complete shock. I couldn't even talk. And then they handcuffed me in the back. And they drove me to the, I guess, downtown to the sheriff's office or somewhere. I was trying to wrap my brain around being arrested. I mean, the phone call, you know, we got the phone call and then everything just like went off the rails. Here's Kim's sister, Kina, again. I don't even know how to explain it. I mean, we just didn't believe it. There was just no way that it was true. There's no possible way that it it happened in her her daycare. Like, she didn't do it. Yeah. They got their facts wrong. There were all kinds of, like, news photographers and all that. They were taking pictures and yelling things, you know, trying to get me to talk to them. And 
then they ushered me into the, the jail and your strip searched, your pictures taken, your fingerprints, all of that stuff. And then you're stuck in a room with other people that have been arrested. And uh, I, time just gets away from you then because there isn't a clock that you can look at. I don't remember if it was daytime or nighttime or whatever, but I spent a lot of time there. On December 30th, 2002, Kim was indicted for Samisha's murder. Kim went to trial in Franklin County Court in November of 2003, and as always, her family was there to support her. I remember seeing her being brought out in handcuffs, and that was that was the hardest thing anybody could see. You know, your sister would be like, that you know she I could tell she was upset I could tell she she was angry the whole trial was it was like a a blur now that you look back on it because you know I don't want to remember the bad stuff I don't want to remember any of the bad stuff but you know you gotta you gotta think about the past Kim's trial was very heavily medical based so it was really medical testimony on both sides the prosecution's primary witnesses were Dr. McManus, the doctor who had treated Samasha, and Dr. Charles Johnson, head of the child abuse team at Children's Hospital. They both testified that the child had these three symptoms and that that meant it had to be shaken baby syndrome. They also called a deputy coroner, Dr. Patrick Fartle, to testify at trial, and he provided similar testimony. So he said he performed the autopsy. At that time, he said he hadn't noticed that the child had any pre-existing injuries and that he believed that this was shaken baby syndrome. It was very hard to listen to. At times, I felt like I had to zone out because it was too much for me. For anyone to think that I could hurt anyone. I've never hurt anyone in my life. And for someone to make the accusation that I could hurt a child it takes away from who you are. I can't even imagine what she's going through. You know, you're trying to think, how is she going through this? What's, what's in her mind? She would look over at us and, and we would smile and, you know, let her know. We, I guess just letting her know that we were there helped her out a lot. You know, but there was nothing you could do. I mean, it was weird. Like I said, I've never really, something you see on TV, but worse, you know. I assume that my attorney would be there to make sure that things were put right, that, th that the evidence would come out. But that really didn't happen. None of their hospital paperwork, their reports, their findings, anything were ever brought up. Nobody could understand that. We had expected that to be put into trial. And it wasn't. And why it wasn't refuted by my own attorney, and that's one thing that I think needs to, to truly be looked at, not just in my case, but when we're talking about how people get wrongfully convicted, if you don't have the true evidence in front of you, how do you know what is being said by people on the stand is actually true? Kim's defense was 
that she hadn't harmed this child, that this child potentially had been harmed, but it did not happen in Kim's care. And so she had her own expert who testified by deposition. And what he said was that he did believe it was shaken baby syndrome, but that the injuries may have occurred hours earlier. A critical component of that defense was that the child's parents had a history of domestic violence. And so there was evidence put forth about that history at Kim's trial. So there was police reports documenting a number of calls out to the family's house, uh, including incidents where each parent had harmed the other, but also an incident or two where the children had been harmed. So, for example, one was a police report that Samisha's older sister had been shaken. And so we knew that there was this history of, of police activity at the home, but in between the family. You know, I think as far as the defense, the father was the alternate suspect. As far as the prosecution, though, they had this medical evidence that they believed said that the child would have gone into distress, you know, 15, 20 minutes after she was injured. And so as far as they were concerned, he was completely eliminated as a suspect at that point because of that sort of narrow understanding of the timing of these injuries, which now we know is inaccurate. Kim made the decision to testify on her own behalf. She says she had nothing to hide. I thought when I testified that I would be able to bring out the truth. I thought that I would be able to explain some things that didn't make sense or that were wrong. Trying to explain that I didn't hurt a child in front of people that don't know you, you have to really, um, that they're holding your fate in your hands. I think, you know, it's hard to look back and see what was a jury thinking when they reached a verdict. But I think, you know, what was so critical in this case was that they were hearing from doctors who essentially told them this couldn't be any other way. I can't really fault the jury because the jury did not hear the the full truth of the matter. They only heard basically one side since my attorney really did not or was not prepared or did not understand the medical issues enough to refute them. On November 7th, 2003, Kim was convicted of child endangerment, felonious assault, involuntary manslaughter, and murder. She was sentenced to 15 years to life. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey, it's Danielle, Will, and Ryder from Pod Meets World. Thanks to our friends at Hyundai, we were able to record a very special episode for you guys at the one and only, wait for it, Boy Meets World House. Take a listen. We are lucky to be sitting with Alan and Amy Matthews in the flesh, William, Rusty Russ, and Betsy Randall. Yay! Thank you. Thank you. Yes. When those legends get here, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> you're here. You're here already. 
Uh, we didn't legend. either when we were watching yeah, this. That's day. The day. That's we didn't the realize it until we uh, started getting into seasons three and four, and now we're like, oh my god! You were both so good on the show, and we missed it because we were we young, were kids, and, and so self-involved, egomaniacs, yeah. and <laughs> didn't realize well, no, how great you were. We've talked about it. I think you just assumed everybody was as good as them, and, right. and then right. you get into right. as you grow up and you work with other actors, you realize how <gasps> lucky we were yeah. to have you guys. This has been brought to you by the fully electric Hyundai Ionic 5. New episode out now. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. My whole entire family looked after me, took care of me. And um, after I was arrested, they were the ones that kept up the fight for me because once I was in prison, I didn't have the resources to take on my case as much as I wanted to. So they did a lot of the the difficult legwork of looking up stuff for me and, and helping get, gather information that I didn't have at that time. We were always going up there to see her. We had to find a way to do it. It's 45 minutes away from here, at least, with no traffic. So we would try to make it one. I think there was a limit to once a month or twice a month. But we would get up there as much as we could. The whole place just made you feel uh, uneasy. Like, I don't know. Hard leaving her there, too. I think the hardest part when you see her is walking out of it. You walk in, you know, you're, you're grateful to see her. You're grateful to have the time. You're grateful to spend the, the moments with her. But it's, it's, I think the hardest part is when you, every single time walking out of there and saying goodbye, you know, leaving her behind and not wanting to take her with you. And what made it worse for Kim was that their mother was in very poor health. She had severe heart problems and um, she had a heart attack when the verdict came down in the courtroom. So they had to take her from the courthouse to the hospital. Sadly, Kim's mother died while she was in prison. My father died in 2000 and my mother passed away about seven years ago. She held on as long as she could, but she didn't see me get out of prison. What was that like, to have your mom die before you were fully exonerated? It was hard. It was really, really hard. But in the phone calls home, I could tell in her voice that she was fading. And like I said, she hung on for years because she knew I was innocent. She knew she actually kept telling me that I'll see you again outside of prison. I will. But she just could not hold on long enough to see me get out of prison. And I wasn't allowed to go to her funeral because I was a lifer. And the crime that I had, the prison would not take me to her funeral. Mm-hmm. 
Kim's first appeal in 2004 was denied. But with her family's support, she continued to fight for her innocence. And then in 2010, Kim wrote to the newly formed Wrongful Conviction Project at the Ohio Public Defender's Office. I think it was a 20-page letter laying out everything that happened. And, you know, we were immediately interested in her case because, you know, it was really this critical time where we were seeing shaken baby syndrome exonerations across the country. The literature was increasing, and and we really knew that there were some problems with the way this was diagnosed back in, in 2003 and before. What we know now and what was sort of starting to be discovered at that time is that these symptoms that doctors used to identify shaken baby syndrome or abusive head trauma could really be caused by a number of things, including birth trauma, infection, diseases, shortfalls. And so we immediately started looking at Kim's case from that medical standpoint and began our investigation. The really tricky thing in Kim's case is that for years and years, we did not have access to the medical records in this case. So it's kind of strange. It is it is a medical case, but not a single medical record was admitted as an exhibit at Kim's trial. We tried to get her medical records from her trial attorney, but he misplaced his file. Uh, we tried to get them from the child's mother, from the prosecutors. Uh, we filed a motion to get the records, and we were unable to get them. Fortunately, Joanna was able to get the tissue slides from Samisha's autopsy. Dr. Janice Alphoven, who is a forensic pediatric pathologist, she was able to look at those slides and say this child had an old brain injury, which was, you know, huge in this case. Wow. That that was something that wasn't ever presented at trial. It wasn't known that this child had actually suffered a brain injury weeks or months prior, and that that's ultimately what progressed to, to cause her to go into distress and to cause her death. It was nothing that happened in Kim's care. Armed with that information, the team went back to Dr. Fardel, the coroner who had performed Samisha's autopsy, and asked him to review his diagnosis. He was retired at the time and, you know, it took a while for him to get access to a microscope <laughs> to be able to do that. But ultimately, he also looked at the slides and he applied these special iron stains, which he had not applied at the time of the autopsy. And he reached the same conclusion, that there was an old head injury that rebled, and that he had missed before. We also got a radiologist to look at the records, you know, from that standpoint, same conclusion. So in June 2021, we filed a motion asking for a new trial for Kim. And ultimately, after looking at it and looking at all the medical evidence and the expert opinions, and I believe consulting with their own expert, the prosecutor's office agreed with us. And so in October 2021, they they called us up and they said, "We're, we're ready to dismiss all the charges. The judge agreed and Kim was released. I kind of knew that things were happening, that the prosecutor's office wasn't going to fight it, but I felt that the judge would say, give me weeks, months, you know, to look this over. I did not realize that I was act- he was actually going to sign paperwork that day to release me. I got the phone call at work. I had to go into a room, close the door, and... I just cried like I was it was one of those joy moments but sad moments I mean crying you're happy then you want to know when why how where (laughs) when can I get can I leave right now to go get her (laughs) I was going about my day-to-day life in prison and the warden's assistant came to me and said did you know you're leaving prison 
now. And I'm like, no, (laughs) I wasn't packed. I wasn't ready. It was later on that afternoon that I walked out of prison. They were all out in the parking lot waiting on me. It was a joyous, joyous time. Joanna pulled up later. My husband pulled up later. And then all all the cousins came in. And it was like a hurry up and wait. Another hurry up and wait situation. We got to get there, got to get there. And then we got to wait, 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 wait. (laughs) And then we saw her come out, finally, (laughs) carrying her her whole life in a plastic bag, 20 years of her whole life, like, in one plastic bag. (sighs) It was heart-wrenching, heart-wrenching. It was overwhelming. It really was. My legs kind of gave out on me. I couldn't really walk. They ran up to me. I I just kind of, like, stood there, and I kept thinking that I was going to be pulled back in, you know, pulled right back into the prison. Kina and her husband had a room waiting for Kim at home in Westerville, and she moved right in and started to rebuild her life. While in prison, Kim had earned a liberal arts degree, and she was working on a business degree when she was released. I do want to go back and finish my degree. Whether I continue in that vein or not, it would be helpful no matter what type of job that you do to have a business background. Right now, Kim is taking things slowly as she readjusts to life outside. She says she sometimes can't believe she was actually incarcerated for all that time. I did not realize until weeks later when I started trying to remember my life in prison. I couldn't remember my life in prison. It's like the further I got away from prison, all of my memories were being pulled and left in prison because I had to start this new life here. I went back to prison a couple of weeks ago. I went back to see a friend that's there, and it took me a while to get out of the car. And then I walked through that very same gravel parking lot that I walked out of the prison. I was walking back into the prison, and... It, was, it just seems like it's a different life. It's like, like I maybe saw it in a movie. You know, it wasn't my life. But then there are other times like, yeah, I remember. I remember going through that door. I remember what's on the other side of that door. And then she says, it all comes flooding back. I'll be out walking my sister's dogs or I will be somewhere and then I'll realize it's, 4.15, and I might have a panic attack because I'm not on my bed at 4 o'clock for 4 o'clock count in prison. You know, those memories, it's like I'm, I'm back in prison, and that, that happens quite a bit. I don't know how to explain that. It's something that you have to live it to understand it, and it's not something that I tell a lot of people. I just, I have to realize that I'm here. I'm not there. I'm here now. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling. Please support your local innocence organizations and go to the links in the episode description to see how you can help. 
I'd like to thank our executive producers, Jason Flom, Jeff Kempler, and Kevin Wordis, as well as senior producer Annie Chelsea, producer Kathleen Fink, story editor Hannah Beal, and researcher Shelby Sorrells. Mixing and sound design are by Jackie Pauly, with additional production by Jeff Clyburn and Connor Hall. The music in this production is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on all social media platforms at Lava for Good and at Wrongful Conviction. You can also follow me on all platforms at Maggie Freeling. Wrongful Conviction with Maggie Freeling is a production of Lava for Good podcasts in association with Signal Company Number One. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. 